We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Join Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Okay, ready? what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in we I want to the Turray Show. Okay, though. The Turray Show. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> Black people are being left behind in every single area, and the progressive movement is I'm no exception to that. That doesn't mean that Black people haven't been organizing for our freedom, our rights, and justice for our communities for a very long time. It means that the progressive movement, in a lot of ways, is still dominated by wealthy white people, and it's shaped in the image of uh, the concerns and needs and dreams of white communities at the expense of the rest of us. I um, consider myself to be on the progressive side of the political spectrum, and I know firsthand uh, what it has meant to try and make sure that Black communities are a part of the progressive agenda. And over and over again, right, uh, one of the ways that we see the erasure of Black people um, is what I call kind of race-neutral politics and policies that folks try and push forward. From healthcare to housing to the economy, you know, we talk about the middle class, and that is not something that is relevant to Black people. <laughs> you know, you have you know, talking about access to healthcare. Uh, you can't just talk about how it's unaffordable. You also have to talk about the fact that um, in Black communities, in particular, especially the ones that are run by white people. Um, that Black folks are systematically being denied access to quality, affordable health care. Not because people are mean, but because people don't want us to have power. And if you don't take on the racial disparities, right, then all you are going to get is a race-neutral policy that keeps leaving us behind. Um, so my, my push here is that it's a huge loss for progressives to not 
engage and activate Black people, not around the concerns of white people, but around the concerns of Black people. And it's, it's a mistake for those concerns to not be deeply integrated into a progressive agenda. Alicia Garza is, of course, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. She is now with a group called Black Futures Lab, still working to help grow and change America to be more just, more equitable, more free for Black people, for Black people to have more power. She is an important activist and the author of a new book, The Purpose of Power, and we had an amazing conversation. It is uh, my friend and someone I admire, Alicia Garza, on Torre Show. This past couple of weeks and couple of years, a lot of us have felt despondent about America and pessimistic and feeling like we are going downward and there is no stop to the downward momentum. And I'm just curious if you are a person who, in your activism, if you feel like, you know, you are motivated by a sense of fear of like, you know, things are going the wrong direction for black people and somebody needs to stand up, or if you are motivated by a sense of optimism of like things can be better and it, you know it is better than it was a hundred years ago and we can continue to move upward like like where's your compass <laughs> it depends on the day <laughs> it depends on the day but one thing i do know is that fear is not a motivator for me um fear often makes me feel immobile it makes me feel like despondent, like I can't do anything about it. And so there does have to be for me, some sense that things can change and that we can impact that change. At the same time, um, I am not somebody who uh, looks at things always from a rosy perspective. And I I think that's okay. Um, We are in really dangerous times and there's a lot of death and destruction and painful things that are happening. But what I believe in and what I know to be true is that resilience comes from fighting for yourself. You know, the human body (laughs) does all these things, right, to keep us alive. Um, When we try to stop breathing, you know, our body fights that and resists it and says, no, you have to live. Um, And so I look at movement and, and this work in that same way. Um, I am motivated by a sense that you know, the destruction and the peril that we're experiencing is not what defines us, right? What defines us is what we do about it. And so every waking moment, I am thinking about how to land a punch. I am thinking about how to win. I am thinking about how to get around these barriers that are being erected in front of me every single day and us every single day. And in that way, it's almost like a puzzle, right? It's like, (laughs) I don't know if you ever play video games. I used to play Super Mario Brothers and I would just do the same level over and over again until I could get it because I just had a sense, right? Like, oh, I never saw that thing. Maybe if I do this, that's how I approach movement work. Um, So for me, I am motivated by a profound sense of love for my people, love for myself, um, and 
a lot of what motivates me, right, is a desire to win and to change. What does winning for Black people look like? Oh, so many things. You know, winning for Black people looks like being powerful in every aspect of our lives. And that's the work I do at the Black Futures Lab, right? I think winning for Black people looks like our stories being allowed to be complex and messy and nuanced and for that to be okay. I think winning for Black people looks like um, being able to make decisions over our own lives um, without interference and without um, um, being killed for it. Um, Freedom for Black people looks like being able to achieve and accomplish our dreams, not just when everybody else is asleep, but when we're all awake. Um, And freedom for Black people means dignity and being able to live and be in our bodies without apology. Um, And that is what I fight for every single day. It's the work I do at the Black Futures Lab. It's the work I've done with Black Lives Matter. I work to make Black people powerful in politics so that we can be powerful in the rest of our lives. And I spend a lot of time um, dreaming about what that feels like, what that looks like, what it tastes like, because that's what's motivating me to keep fighting. It's what gets me out of bed every day. Can we accomplish the things that you're talking about without reparations, right? A lot of people feel like the wealth gap is the core problem that separates us from economic and political power. And, you know, without some significant payment to black people in some way, that wealth gap will never be truly addressed. Is that a necessary part in getting to winning for you? Sure. Um, Reparations is deeply important. And for me, reparations is actually about truth and reconciliation. Um, It's not just about wealth. And for me also, um, a strong program of reparations also has to take into account um, really adjusting and transforming the way that our economy functions in the first place. You cannot um, be in an economy like this and have equal and equitable wealth. You just can't because our economy is designed uh, for those disparities. And even if right, you are um, trying to level the playing field in some kind of way um, through reparations, it doesn't change the way the economy functions itself. So I, I think you actually need to have both. And I would love it if our conversations for Black people around repair and um, our conversations for Black people around uh, an economic future were actually much more expansive than the boundaries that we're operating within right now. Mm, Heck yeah. I ask everybody who comes on the show, what does being Black mean to you and how does it show up in your work? And usually I'm talking to you know, singers or actors or rappers about that question. Um, but I think for, I know for you, what it means to be black is deeply profound and it is at the core of your work. Um, so, you know, I'm definitely excited to hear from you what being black means to you and how it shows up in your work. Hmm. For me, being black means being bold and unapologetically so. 
And that shows up in my work all the time. You know, being Black in this country and really being Black around the world in many places um, means that you have to live without apology or you just are not living. And so um, for me, that shapes my work in a bunch of ways. Um, You know, we're not afraid to challenge um, traditional notions of what progress and progressivism mean. Um, We know that Black people have been left out and left behind and that the rules have been rigged against our communities for a very long time. And so we are putting forward bold policies, bold proposals to try and make sure, right, that there's um, a coherent clear alternative to the way that things are from a Black perspective. Um, And even anytime we talk about from a Black perspective, I think we are shaking the foundations of um, how this country was built. This country was not built around a Black perspective. And in fact, it was built by Black people in part, but they missed a piece, which was making sure that we were a part of shaping how the thing went down. And every time Black people are involved in reshaping this project, it gets better. And so for me, Blackness is the boldness, the audacity um, to do it differently. And um, I will also say that lately, for me, um, being Black is also about, I don't want to say shared vision because we're not a monolith. We don't all think the same things. We don't all want the same things. But there is something deep that connects us. Um, And I love that. Um, You know, I often tell the story of, you know, how I came to see the world through the eyes of my mom. And I remember my mom at a very young age with me. And if we were ever out in public and we saw another Black person, she would be like, you say hello. (laughs) And this is like one of those unspoken rules, right? Like even when I'm in New York, I say hi to Black folks and they'd be looking to be like, what is you doing? <laughs> but maybe it's a very Southern tradition. But no, that's not fair. We uh, say hi to each other in New York. Yeah, no, it's just different. You know, we we different culturally. It's okay. West I mean, Coast, in, East Coast, we love each other. In the South, it's more formal and more overt. In New York, we just nod. Like, you know, yeah, and I that's, just, that's a lot. Well, I think some of it, though, for me is what's lovely about it is that we are depending on each other for our dignity. Um, that we know, right? That if nobody else is going to fight for us, we're going to fight for us. And that is Blackness to me. Um, Yeah. Um, There's so many things in your book, uh, The Purpose of Power, that were really interesting to me. You brought up your mom. And one of the things that stood out to me when you were telling the story of your mom, that she worked in the prison system. And you talked about her saying that the prison leaders make conditions unsafe on purpose as a way of creating space to demand additional funding and staffing and things that have been taken away. And I was completely, on one hand, blown away by that. And on the other hand, like, of course, capitalism would, uh, you know, and, and bureaucracy would would sacrifice certain individuals so that the bureaucracy or the institution would would itself grow. And I thought too about how the police do much the same thing that they can say, "Look at this area is crime ridden. 
which means that the police have failed in that area. But instead of that being, you have failed and we should try something else, no, it means we should give you more resources. And of course the police do things to allow certain areas to fail and to inflate the crime statistics in certain areas so that they can go back to City Hall and say, look, we need more people in Brownsville or Oakland or whatever maybe. And and the, the white middle class falls for it every single time. Um, but, you know, just that, that notion you 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 introduced it so succinctly and so personally and i was like this is playing out over and over and over throughout society Mm -hmm. well what was so important to me about that conversation that i had with my mother is that you know for so many of us um we are fighting for survival and there are so many of our people, black folks, brown folks, right? Who um, are working in a system that is also devastating our communities. And the contradiction there is not lost on me, right? That that was a job that my mother had that um, was one of the only ones that she could get at that time as a black woman where she could have benefits and where she could have a wage that uh, actually paid the rent, um, where she could even maybe be in a position to buy a house. Um, And, you know, that's not the work she wanted to do. It was the work she was forced to do so that she could raise a family. And that's also a lot of what we see in these kinds of conversations. Um, You know, uh, uh, the fight for more resources for systems that don't work, right? Or that are inherently predatory, right? They're always going to need to be fed in order to stay stable. But when we talk about um, how we fix that, right? How we change that, there is a conversation to be had in there about how we address people's need for dignity and survival. You know, my mom um, was not an abolitionist. She would not have ever called herself an abolitionist. Uh, My mom also didn't talk about herself as a feminist, but she did practice in very concrete ways um, all of the principles and manifestations of what feminism is about. And so from a practical perspective, when we're thinking about how to change laws and rules and systems that are unjust, we can't forget about the ways in which these laws and systems um, have also swallowed up our people um, in such a way where um, it looks like we are also trying to advance it when actually we're just trying to live, right? And so if you're trying to think about how to change that, you're going to have to get people like my mom on your side. (laughs) And you may look at somebody like her and say, oh, she wouldn't be on my side. She was a prison guard, right? But actually, there are a lot of people working in these systems who know how terrible it is, and they need it to be able to pay their rent. They need it to be able to put food on the table. So these are contradictions that organizers have to be able to address with very smart strategy. Yeah, you know, I try to talk a lot in in my little work or my little corner of the world about how it's not about being racist. You can definitely uh, reap the benefits of white privilege without being racist or being hateful toward black and brown people. Um, 
And your mom, you bring up some of the contradiction within that, that somebody may say, like, you are working in the prison system, thereby you are supporting the criminal justice system. And, like, she's far from racist, and she's, you know, raising you to be the person that you are, and yet this is the work that I had to do to take care of my daughter at this moment in my life. I had to be part of this system, even though these are my beliefs over here, and these are the sorts of things that capitalism forces us into? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I work every single day to make sure that women like my mom have better choices and better options. And that is the work of social change. You know, my mom eventually left um, the prison system uh, because she was facing sexual harassment um, in her job. Uh, She also suffered uh, an injury while on the job. And um, as one of the only kind of women at that time to be a prison guard, um, faced a lot of animosity, not just from being black, but from being a woman. And it drove her out of that job. Um, And I want people like my mom to have more choices than that. I don't want anybody to be stuck in a false, uh, in a forced choice of I can either feed my family or I can work in this job that is a part of a system that is decimating my community. And when we talk about social change and we work for social change, I think that that's a common pattern for a lot of people that we want to have more choices. We want more options. We want to actually have options. And this is why my book, I think, is important, is it brings into perspective um, what it is that we're fighting for. Uh, We're not just fighting for things to be good. We're not just fighting for people to feel good. We are fighting for the ability to determine our own futures, hence the purpose of power. (laughs) And what I'm hoping to do with this book is is provide some tools and some lessons um, for people who are just coming into this work, have realized that things are messed up and they want to be a part of making change, but they don't know where to start. In so many ways, this is the book that I wanted when I uh, first started organizing 20 plus years ago. And I'm hoping that it will be that much of a tool and a resource uh, for somebody today. When you, you, you spend a lot of time in the book talking basically through political history um, you know, here's what Ronald Reagan did and how he changed America. And then the first Bush and Clinton and the second Bush. Um, and you, you paint the picture of how conservatism has risen and changed and become this force that is really oppressive toward black and brown people. Um, I, you are not critical in the book of progressivism, but I am sure that you personally have your critiques of the progressive movement. And I wonder where you feel that progressivism can do better at supporting and uplifting black and brown people. Because conservatism makes no uh, is not confused. We are here for rich white people and screw the rest of y'all. But progressivism is trying very hard you know, and that's my tribe, and I love those folks, but they are trying very hard to uplift black and brown people. But I'm sure there are places where you say, here's where you're not doing enough, my progressive sisters and brothers. <laughs> my progressive brethren. <laughs> yes. Well, black people are being left behind in every single area, and the progressive movement is um, no exception to that. 
That doesn't mean that Black people haven't been organizing for our freedom, our rights, and justice for our communities for a very long time. It means that the progressive movement in a lot of ways is still dominated by, um, you know, wealthy white people. And it's shaped in the image of uh, the concerns and needs and dreams of white communities at the expense of the rest of us. And I do talk a little bit about this in the book. I um, consider myself to be on the progressive side of the political spectrum. And I know firsthand uh, what it has meant to try and make sure that black communities are a part of the progressive agenda. And over and over again, right? Uh, one of the ways that we see the erasure of black people um, is what I call kind of race neutral politics and policies that folks try and push forward from healthcare to housing to the economy. You know, we talk about the middle class, and that is not something that is relevant to black people. <laughs> um, you know, you have, you're talking about, access to healthcare, uh, you can't just talk about how it's unaffordable. You also have to talk about the fact that um, in Black communities in particular, especially the ones that are run by white people, um, that Black folks are systematically being denied access to quality, affordable health care, not because people are mean, but because people don't want us to have power. And if you don't take on the racial disparities, right, then all you are going to get is a race neutral policy that keeps leaving us behind. Um, so my my push here, and I talk about this a bunch in the book, uh, particularly in, in some of the chapters about uh, my early organizing days, uh, is that it's a huge loss for progressives to not uh, um, engage and activate Black people, not around the concerns of white people, but around the concerns of Black people. And it's, it's a mistake for those concerns to not be deeply integrated into a progressive agenda. Not only are Black people incredibly active civically, not only are Black people at the forefront of radically reimagining um, policies that improve our lives every single day, um, but white folks can't win that stuff alone either. <laughs> so, especially in this political terrain. So it makes sense practically uh, to ensure that Black people are engaged and motivated. And it also makes sense uh, politically. Uh, in in a in a world where majority rules, right? If we want to become the majority, we've got to make sure Black people are at the table. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. 
And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Folks, um will, of course, know your name, and your name goes down in history as one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. But now you're with the Black Futures Lab, Can you, which is not yet as known as Black Lives Matter. Can you um, just help us define and understand what is Black Futures Lab and what are you guys trying to do? Well, I like how you said not yet, because we are on the move. Uh, The Black Futures Lab uh, and the Black to the Future Action Fund is a project that I started in 2018. And we work to make Black communities powerful in politics so we can be powerful in the rest of our lives. You know, the real kickoff to this was um, my experience in the 2016 election, presidential election, where Black folks were being talked about but not spoken to. Uh, We were being engaged culturally, but not substantively around the issues that impact our lives every day. And having been a voter since age 18, what I know is that Black voters are powerful and that there's so little resources invested into making sure that our political infrastructure is powerful, too. So we started off this project with something called the Black Census, which is the largest survey of Black people in America in 157 years. Uh, It was intended to uh, learn more about the experiences of our communities, but also uh, the the needs and the dreams of our communities. And we use that data uh, to help not only enrich grassroots campaigns in cities and states across the country, Uh, But we also use that data to be able to inform and propose new policies that are race forward, not race neutral, that hold government to account for uh, addressing the needs of our communities um, and that push forward a black progressive agenda. 
And so a lot of the work that we do is we build the capacity of our communities to be powerful in politics through training and through polling and data support through money. And then we also train our communities how to write, win and implement new rules in cities and states across the nation. We also provide rich and complex stories about who Black people are and who we can be together uh, in order to ensure right, that um, the landscape in which we are fighting to change the rules that have been rigged against us for so long is more favorable to our work and to our communities. Well, can you tell me some of the data you learned from the Black census and some of the more surprising findings? Absolutely. Well, I want to make sure that folks who are listening um, or watching us, you can go to blackcensus.org and you can read the findings yourself because uh, we published a whole bunch of that up online. Um, but the most. Um, How many people did you you said it was the largest? How many people did you touch base with? 30,000. It was more than 30,000. And it was all 50 states from all demographics, politically, geographically, uh, you name it, right? And the thing that I found not surprising, but the most profound is that nearly everyone that we talked to said that they had never been asked what they experience, what they dream about, or what they want for their futures. So you can imagine that that does not bode well for a future in which Black people um, are reshaping our democracy. No one had ever asked them what they want for their future? Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm. I mean, like, it's like they, they don't see us. They don't listen to us. They don't really exactly. care. Well, what else did you learn that that overturned any sort of long-held thoughts about Black folk? Well, one of the things that I found to be extremely important is that, you know, the number one issue that everybody identified as the thing that's keeping them awake at night was wages that are too low to support a family, um, quickly followed by a lack of access to affordable and quality health care, and then quickly followed after that by a lack of access to quality and affordable housing. Now, if you were an alien who dropped down in a UFO, right, especially during an election cycle, um, you would think that the only thing that black folks care about is criminal justice reform or, you know, legalizing marijuana or even reparations. But actually, um, the issues that we care about, right, are bread and butter issues. And what we don't see, right, is people who are seeking office really address the ways in which those issues impact our communities um, with a racial justice perspective. And that's what we push for every single day. We push for policies that are race forward, that place that racial justice perspective at the forefront. It's not a separate thing, right? We don't, <laughs> I think sometimes when we're talking about issues in this country, we put racial justice to the side and then um, we don't have any proposals for what to do about it, except for people to be nicer to each other. It's actually happening in this administration, right? They make these announcements about racial justice. And you're like, what is this? You can announce racial justice when you're talking about infrastructure. You can announce racial justice when you're talking about voting rights. These are all racial justice issues. It's not a thing on the side. Um, and it's certainly not um, only what happens when, you know, um, 
rabid white folks storm the Capitol because they think the election has been stolen. That's not that's not the only thing we care about. Black people are watching that like we told y'all, we told y'all, we told y'all. And now you got to deal with this. Right. We care about that. But we also really care about making sure that our communities have the resources that we need to be and live well. I would be remiss, Toure, if I didn't say that, you know, I was really impacted by the news of uh, Michael K. Williams dying. Um, And it just the thing that came up for me, because I have a lot of people in my life um, who I love, who are black, who are struggling with addictions of many forms and many many ways is we don't have the resources that we need in our communities to support people in some of the hardest times that we've faced in my lifetime. And for somebody like, like him, um, he was a celebrity, uh, but he talked a lot, right. About being known widely, right. (laughs) Having zero dollars and not knowing where to turn um, around addiction issues. And so for me, when I think about what it means to fight for us to be powerful, to fight for us to have dignity. It has to mean ultimately resources for infrastructure in our communities to deal with the grief and the trauma that also comes from a lack of racial justice in our communities. Um, Wages, healthcare, and housing are critical issues, Um, but police reform is also incredibly important to us. I know as I move around New York City, I am more afraid of the police than I am of criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, what are, you know, and this is the this is the first issue that BLM became, you know, famous and known for. What can, what substantive reforms can we agitate for? And not just BFL, but like all of us, like what are the things that we can push for that could make a difference on this issue for us? Are, I mean, are you an abolitionist? Are you, are you like, do you think like we can actually get reform done? Um, look, I, I don't feel, um, I don't feel steeped enough in an abolitionist tradition to speak on abolition. What I do know is that policing as a system is incredibly destructive and toxic and harmful. And the way that we deal with harm um, cannot be solved by punishing people um, in the ways that we do, whether that be death penalty, whether that be putting people in cages, um, whether that be the way that our communities are policed and surveilled and controlled. Um, I don't think that we have clear evidence that any of that actually works or addresses the challenges that we're trying to address. What's interesting to me is that so much of what is happening with policing is impacted by um, local and state governments, uh, municipal governments and state governments. There's very little about policing uh, that is um, impacted by what the feds do. So um, the good news to that, right, is that um, you can touch this issue very closely. You don't have to go to the White House to change how policing is happening in your community. You got to go to your city council meetings. You got to address your mayor and engage your mayor. And in a lot of ways, 
you have a lot more power over your mayor than you do the president. So I would encourage people to look at case studies of what cities are doing across the country. New York City is doing really interesting things around policing. Um, Los Angeles is doing really amazing things around policing. Chicago is doing really amazing things around policing. So my suggestion would be to, you know, follow those organizations and those individuals who are making those changes to get inspired about what might be possible in your area. I was moved by so many different moments in your book, and I just want to pick some of them and just sort of go through them. Um, Just little things. You, You were talking about your... I think your teenage years and you talked about being both that blackness was both demonized and romanticized. And I think we see that all the time that, you know, black and white people can marvel at our joy, our style, our flair, our parties, our brilliance when it comes to dance or linguistics or sports or whatever. And then in, in a moment later, right, and this is the two-ness that will, like, make your head freaking break. Like, a moment later, you can be seen as, you know, a villain, as dumb, as, you know, somebody to be afraid of or what have you. Um, somebody, you know, who's, you know, just bringing the country or the room down. Um, and that sort of keeps getting us, pulling us both directions, like, all the time. You know, um, one of the things that I love about us is that we um, are incredibly complex. You cannot put us in any kind of boxes. (laughs) You cannot zip us up in any kind of bag because we are just going to like, (laughs) you know, like we cannot be contained. (laughs) That's how we feel about that. And yes, growing up, um, I certainly had the experience of Um, seeing people emulate me, right? And also demonize me at the same time. And it is um, incredibly disorienting, right? So I grew up uh, for part of my life in a pretty wealthy white suburb. And to see white kids sagging their pants and wearing the new Jordans and wearing flat bill caps and, you know, (laughs) trying to emulate what they thought was street culture, even though they lived in the suburbs was deeply entertaining to me. And at the same time, right, these are the same people who, you know, if I'm still connected with them on Facebook, a lot of them, I am not, uh, these types of folk, um, you know, these are the same people who I see on Facebook, you know, talking about, um, you know, I remember a few years ago now I uh, posted on my Facebook about uh, the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and somebody who I went to high school with, who I had gone to their bat mitzvah um, or their bar mitzvah, I, um, you know, grew up running around with this guy <laughs> He posts this white guy who was like, thought he was hard. (laughs) He posted on my Facebook, you people got your president. What else do you want? I mean, this is (laughs) like, I laugh about it now, but it's not funny. I mean, this is. We laugh to keep from crying. I mean, like, that's our reparations, of course, right? Like literally the. the it's the embodiment, right, of the contradictions around 
whiteness um, as it relates to black people. Um, and there is a level of entitlement, right, around being able to adopt things about us that you like, but then also raging against us right? Um, when we dare to be free or powerful or even mourn um, the loss of our people. So the point of this part in the book is really to talk about um, how it is that we get more grounded in our political terrain. I think a lot of people, when they're looking at how to create change, how to be a part of change efforts, um, not only do they not know where to start, but in a lot of ways, um, some folks are looking at their environment as an environment of good or bad people, nice or mean people. And what I was really trying to do in those chapters was lay out um, how we got here and to place myself in that context, right? When I tell stories about my childhood or my teenage years, I'm telling the stories of the place that I was in and the social dynamics of that place, but I'm also talking about what was happening around me politically. I'm talking about focus on the family and the moral majority and how that shaped me as a teenager who uh, is a black girl child, right? All these conversations around contraception and abortion and healthcare, right? How did that shape um, the environment that I was growing up in? And how did that also shape my consciousness about what needed to happen? Um, I'm talking in the book about, you know, MTV. And I, I saw a meme recently that said, happy 40th birthday to MTV, which I I wasn't, I wasn't, I was, it's like I, I knew it, but I wasn't ready to like, it was just, it was too, it, it was too loud. You know what I'm saying? It was too loud. The early but that's 80s. Where I got my first um, foray and introduction into global politics. It's where I got politicized in a lot of ways, right? It was through that kind of pop culture with also what, which was at the time, like accurate information about not just what was happening in America, but also what was happening around the world and how that was shaping us. And I hope from this book, what people are doing with it is doing that exercise themselves, right? If you grew up in the 80s like me, um, this will be very illuminating to you about how we got here uh, to this Republican Party, right? What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly. It's sunny again. 
When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. How the, the, the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter emerges under the first Black president this country has ever had, it will help to unlock or at least offer a perspective on um, some of the contradictions that we face today and where they came from. Once you ground yourself in how you got here, you can also ground yourself in what is my particular role in playing a part in change. So I hope that's what the book does for people. You tell this story in the book that is um, frightening and yet you kind of experience whiteness for a moment, perhaps, when the cop pulls you over and you had, <laughs> you had a significant amount of weed on you and you were planning to sell it, right? Like you were not a weed dealer, but it was like we came up on a, you know, an ounce and we're going to sell this to make a little money. And, um, you know, and he he almost found it. I think you alluded like he kind of knew what was in the bag, but like you you were actually driving and high with your white female friend and he was like, I'm gonna let y'all go. And I was like, wow, like, see, that's, that's white people justice, right? And you allude to it like generally black people are going to go to jail in for oh, less than that. And oh, yeah, yeah. white people are like, just like, uh, you know, just just sober up for a minute and then drive home. Like, wow. Like, look at look at whiteness work. Like, wow. <laughs> Watch whiteness work. Exactly. Well, look, there were a bunch of different factors there. I mean, one, I was in a BMW. Um, that was my mom's car. Um, two, I was in a BMW in the middle of the night with a little white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. Um, and the address on my license was um, where the wealthy people lived. And so- So you had the right address and you had the right friend. So that gave you the protection, the protection from the complexion. That's right. But also, to be honest, it was a discretion question as well. And um, so much of how things work is about discretion and, you know, from, from sentencing, right. To arrest or even just contact. It's about the choices that, 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 that officer is making at any given time. And they're taking in a lot of information and a lot of the information they're taking in is um, about you and whether or not they think you're a threat and black people are considered to be a threat. And it could have gone down very differently for me um, that night had I been but in the car. you know how to code switch. Well, had I been in the car with a black man, it would have been a whole different story for me, even if I was in that BMW. Right. So what I'm trying to get people to understand here is that, you know, um, of course, there are aberrations. But what we have to focus on is not the aberration. We have to focus on what is the um, the rule. So I hear people say a lot, well, I know nice police officers, right? Or, you know, <laughs> you know, I got in trouble for shoplifting at a certain point in my life. And I like to remind people, right, that there are a lot of factors around um, which direction people go in. And so much of that is 
shaped by, impacted by, and influenced by race. And if we are not conscious of that, right, we keep telling these fairy tales about the way that things work in this country and in this world that prevent us from achieving the kind of change that we want to see. With um, those sort of stories about interactions with the police, so often are tragic. And I know with BLM and with Black Futures Lab and your own connection to the news and curiosity, you are encountering tons and tons of stories of just horrific things that are happening to black people. And I think a lot about how most black people have about 20 to 25 short films in their short-term memory of black people being murdered. You know, perhaps you have more than that, you know, from your experiences in your short, and like what impact does that have on all of us holding all that we can see all these murders, all these snuff films at a moment's notice. And um, I mean, I, I wonder one, what you think the impact of all of us having those images in our mind all the time is, and also how do you keep from getting numb when you are encountering so many stories, individualized as well as collective, large stories about like just how rough things are for black people in general and how rough they are for specific black people. Um, so here's how I do it. You know, um, I am not in any way immune to um, wanting to unplug and disconnect. And sometimes I do. Sometimes that is self-preservation and watching death and destruction over and over again is also not a motivator. Um, so I do take the time that I need to regroup and to get grounded. And I also try not to turn away um, because in some ways I want to be reminded of what we're fighting for. Um, yeah. so I, I think it's a hard balance sometimes to achieve. And for me, I, I make two arguments, um, in the purpose of power. And one is that we actually need tools as activists and as organizers to address and deal with grief and rage and trauma, because there is a lot of it right now. And especially in this moment where we are being impacted by a global public health crisis, where um, the climate crisis is getting more and more devastating and it's impacting more and more people. And then everything feels unsure, unstable. Um, when we try to come together to do something about the things that we wanna change, if we don't have tools to navigate that grief, that rage, that trauma, we take it out on each other. Um, and it keeps us from being powerful together. So that's one piece of it. But the other piece of it is, you know, I try to just keep in mind that um, it is not the hard things that define us. It's what we do about those things that define us. In every moment in history, um, what we pay attention to is not the rough stuff. It's what people did to do something about it, right? Um, you know, imagine if we had a narrative that was just, uh, you know, Black people were enslaved. 
but there was no other part to the story. <laughs> no, the defining the defining story of chattel slavery is what, what people did to resist it. And so in this moment, um, we actually get to define what the story is, what our stamp on these horrible things will be. And I want to be able to tell my children and my grandchildren um, that I didn't sit back and just watch. I, I want to be able to tell my kids and my grandchildren that I fought for us um, and that I'm continuing to fight for us. And I think that's a feeling a lot of people can relate to. Well, you can surely and truly tell your children, your grandchildren, you did that. Um, and you did that at a gigantic level. Um, I, I, I haven't, I haven't, been, I've been to Oakland once, once or tw- once or twice, once or twice. We need you. We need you. <laughs> I think maybe, I think it's twice. I think it's twice. Um, um, Oakland's a really special place, yeah. um, and it's a super black place. Yeah, and um, you know, you, you've come here with your Oakland against the world T-shirt, and I wonder yeah. if you can just educate the rest of us a little bit on what Oakland is all about. I mean, you know, when you talk about chocolate cities, that is one of the glittering stars of of that that constellation. Um, so. Tell us about Oakland. You know, Oakland is, um, it is such a special place. And in a lot of ways, I feel like people are just discovering it. Um, And unfortunately, in some ways, um, after they've discovered it, they try to take apart all the things that makes Oakland what it is. You know, I'm not from here, but I live here and I love here and I've built a home here. And What I love about Oakland is that it's always been scrappy. (laughs) Oakland is the kind of place that just doesn't give a fuck. We just, we out here, you know what I mean? Like Oakland is the kind of place where anything goes. Um, Oakland is the kind of place where um, we take up space. Um, Oakland is the kind of place where, you know, we're influencing and shaping culture all around the world, right? Like Oakland is the home of people like Too Short and the home of Tony, Tony, Tony and and Vogue, right? <laughs> um, Sheila E., you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. what else? MC Hammer, like what else can we say about the town? The town is, um, it's it used to be the place that people were afraid to go. Um, and now it's become quite the hot spot. But what I love about this place is that it's down to earth. It's down to earth. What you see is what you get here. And I can appreciate that. I remember um, David Diggs's movie about, um, was it blind spotting? Is that right? That's yeah. right. Uh, and, and, and it talked a lot about Oakland and it gave us a real flavor of Oakland, but it also portrayed Oakland, similar to Brooklyn, as being sort of rapidly gentrifying and thus losing its flavor. Is that the way you see things? I do. I mean, there are so many things that have been created here, so many ways that people have found to build and make community. And as a new crop of people moves into this neighborhood and these communities, um, they want to change it. And it sucks. Um, You know, when we talk about Lake Merritt is a place where people gather, especially during the summer months when it's hot. And, you know, the neighbors there, um, new, mostly new residents have made it so that 
it's basically impotent now, right? You had vendors, you had people having a good time, music, parties, drumming. And it's just like complain, complain, complain until, you know, um, uh, you know, the rules are changed and it's just weird. And, you know, even in my community, I live um, in one of the historic black communities here in Oakland. And, you know, I, I, I have one neighbor who's been here for 30 plus years. Like she knows the, the last eight people that have lived in my house before me. And then there's, you know, a, a group of people who just moved in next door to her and they're already knocking on my doors with flyers about the parking. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just like, I'm like, you, you don't even come introduce yourself. You just come and complain about something that actually isn't bothering anybody except for you. <laughs> like, just be cool. You know what I mean? Get to know people. We can work this out. It's just weird. It's super weird. It's just weird. Um, I ask everybody, um, what is your superpower? What is the thing that you do better than other folks that has led to the success that you have had? Ooh, my superpower is that I have a tough skin and a soft heart. Um, I am never going to stop fighting for us and I'm never going to stop believing that change can happen, but I'm also not going to let you get under my skin. Well, you have to have that, that combination to be an effective act, uh, activist because you have to love the people and be guided by love. But at the same time, when the arrows come at you from both the white community and the activist community that you have to be able to, withstand that because because you do get a lot of stuff thrown at you i do but i think um as awful and annoying as it is it's also what happens when you dare to change things um not everybody is going to support you not everybody's going to have your back but what i do know is that i have met more people that do than don't um and i get reminded constantly um that it's so much easier to focus on the people the small handful of people that have something to say about you than the wide group of people who are cheering you on every single day and want you to go farther. So I, I'm not saying I always do this well, but I do try my best um, to focus on um, the voices that say, keep going and thank you for um, creating room for me to do the boldest, most audacious things that I can do right now. Thanks so much to Alicia for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jake Garifano. Our editors, Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door 
thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 